Well, good morning, Sunset Bible Church family. So good to welcome you again. I'd like to extend my warmest greetings along with the other welcomes you've had throughout the morning. Uh, And I also want to thank you for joining us wherever you are uh, here in the community, University Place, Washington, or around the Northwest, across the country, and a number of you around the world listening at other times. So grateful. We consider it a great honor to worship together with you in God's Word. And I would love to invite you to take your Bibles, if you have one handy there, and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We'll be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning, specifically looking at verses 5 through 17, a rather large section made up of really two paragraphs, but uh, a good paragraph, uh, both of those. And I'm so excited to be to be with you here. If you've looked at our notes ahead of time or uh, last week and so on, you notice my title for the morning, uh, Be Killing Sin or It Will Be Killing You. And uh, I've noted in other places that that is, a, that is a phrase that I have borrowed from one of the Puritans of old. It sounds like a rather Puritanish phrase, old English, I suppose, be killing sin or it will be killing you, comes from John Owen, who lived in the 1600s, one of the, one of the great Puritans of old. I want to say just a word about him and his writing about sin as an introduction to the text. All right, because that's really what we're going to be talking about today is the struggle with sin that we all face, uh, putting off the old, putting on the new, to use Paul's terminology. But a few things about John Owen, because of of people who have written about the struggle with sin, uh, his works now several hundred years old stand among the best of all the things that have been written. Now, I am a good dispensationalist, as you know. But I enjoy the Puritans who generally write from a Reformed uh, theological perspective. And I enjoy their writings, even though there are areas we look at things differently from one another. And that, of course, is a good exercise for me, as it is for you, to be able to learn from people uh, whose different places, their theology might be a bit different than yours. But a word about John Owen. Uh, John was a pastor's kid. And, uh, boy, born in 1616 uh, in England. And from the time he was young, he had a a heart for God and an amazing intellect, such that at age 12, try that, parents, 12 years old, he headed off to Queen's College at Oxford to study the classics, mathematics, philosophy, theology, Hebrew, and, oh, rabbinical writings. Uh, When he was 16, he completed his bachelor's work. When he was 19, he completed his master's work. During his teen years, instead of playing Minecraft or other such things, uh, he studied theology and all these other topics 18 to 20 hours a day. Not because anybody made him, because he loved it. Now, Owen, of course, was, as we've mentioned, an amazing intellect, probably second only to, to John Calvin, I would guess, and has profoundly influenced a lot of people. And I, I mention in particular J.I. Packer, uh, whose book called A Quest for Godliness explains his theological dependence on John Owen and his love for this writer. And then, of course, there's also the life and works of John Owen, if you really like to delve into things like that. But, but a couple of things before I read uh, some excerpts from him on, on the struggle with sin. To read John Owen is to, to get a warm-hearted look at theology. Sometimes people think of the Puritans as old grumpy men who looked around for people having fun so that they could rebuke them. 
Not really true. That's a, that's a gross a caricature of these guys and gals. But, but John Owen uh, was a warm-hearted man who loved Christ and loved people. He was a good pastor. And he wrote for about, oh goodness, uh, 40, for over 40 years, all kinds of books. He was married to a young lady named Mary for 31 years. But something you should know about him in particular, uh, Owen, uh, John Owen and his wife Mary became parents to 11 children. Ten of them died in childhood. One of their children lived to be an adult. She entered a marriage that was not good, ended up moving back home at a young age, and shortly thereafter died of tuberculosis. Shortly thereafter, John Owen's wife, Mary, died, leaving this theologian, uh, well, grieving over a period of 30-some years. Think about that, those of you who grieve. Uh, This man, as he wrote about theology, he wrote about the glory of God, and he wrote about struggles with sin, he was doing it from a a life that was very, very real, uh, just rooted in, in the difficulties and the tears of life. He was not some ivory tower theologian who didn't know about real life. He really did. Now, a book you may perhaps be interested in reading if you really want to to, to, to take a big challenge. This is a modern reprint of three of John Owen's books. Uh, it comes under the title of Overcoming Sin and Temptation, which as, um, as blunt as that sounds, it's, it's easier than the titles for Owen's books because as a good Puritan, he didn't understand the modern convention of get a gripping title to sell lots of them, uh, sell lots of his books. So the three books included in this volume go under these riveting uh, headings. Uh, Book one, of the mortification of sin in believers. There, I know, that'll make you want to buy that. Uh, Book two, of temptation, the nature and power of it. And then three, just this title, indwelling sin. Now, I realize you might not have picked those up on your Kindle because they sound good, but a a couple of things that I I, I want to, to just highlight And I have some more comments about him at the conclusion of our time together. In his first book, so quoted, uh, called The Necessity of Mortification, (laughs) I know, uh, he, he, he has a section here where he says it's the duty of the Christian, the duty of the Christian to mortify the deeds of the body. And it's here that we get that phrase that I've used for my sermon title today, be killing sin or it will be killing you. He's saying, child of God, this whole business of grappling against sin, fighting against sin, putting to death the deeds of the body, this isn't just for, for advanced people in faith. It's for every child of God. And it's a, a task that every one of us must embrace. What do you do in the fight against sin? Now, at the, in the preface to his, the second book here, quoted, um, about temptation, I want you to listen to this long sentence. It's seven lines long. It's one sentence, but it, it speaks to us today. You could have written this today. He says, Christian reader, if you are in any measure awake in these days wherein we live and have taken notice of the manifold great and various temptations uh, wherewith all sorts of persons who know the Lord and profess his name are beset and whereunto they're continually exposed with what success these temptations have obtained to the unspeakable scandal of the gospel with the wounding and ruin of innumerable souls. I suppose you will not inquire any further after other reasons of publishing 
the ensuing warnings and directions being suited to the times that pass over us and your own concern in them. In other words, sin makes a mess of life. Have you noticed other people's lives and our own? And if you're awake, as he says, you might want to pay attention to this. Well, thank you, Mr. Owen. And then finally, in his, the third book mentioned here the, about indwelling sin, I, I just found this so interesting that 400 years ago, without anything resembling modern counseling or psychology, Owen, having read the scriptures, would have a chapter where he says this as the heading, the heart is the seat and subject of this law of sin. And he goes on to describe then the struggle in our hearts, the struggle that he knew very well and that you know and that this pastor knows, a struggle against sin, the longings of the heart, sometimes for things that are against the will of God, sometimes for things that you say, oh, Lord, I don't know if it is the will of God, but a longing for things that so far God has not yet given. The heart is the seat and the subject of this struggle with sin. Well, John Owen, I would commend his, his writing to you. And again, I'll comment more about some of these things in a minute. But we come today then to Colossians 3, a long introduction, I know. But this text uh, is very much in keeping with the things that Owen would want us to look at today. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, 5 through 17. And I want to begin reading at chapter 3, verse 1, just so we get the flow of the text. And after I read the text, we'll pray together, and then we'll get after it here in our discussion of God's word. But hear God's word then, Colossians 3, beginning at verse 1. So we read this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And we hear God's word together. I'd love to pray for us. Would you join me as we do that? Our Father, we come with gratefulness to time in God's word. Uh, Thank you so much for telling us what you're like, telling us how you'd want us to live, and telling us about a Savior, Jesus, who died on the cross in our place, bearing our sin, who rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and indeed is coming, is coming again. And our Father, as we open the word of God together today, you know every one of our hearts, our struggles, our needs, our longings. And Father, exactly what we need to hear today. So would you help us by the Spirit of God to to glean from this text exactly what it is each of us needs, wherever we are. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were able to to access the sermon notes that we prepare each week, you will see a number of things about review, uh, looking back all the way to our study in Galatians, uh, a book we studied last fall talking about Paul's defending the gospel. Here as we come to Colossians, Paul applying the gospel. And I'm remembering back with you a couple weeks ago as we spoke about unity in the body that morning that we celebrated communion, how important that we remember all of these things. Now, my, my comments today on these two paragraphs, you'll find, again, if you have those notes in front of you, under two headings, uh, old behaviors that do not fit the child of God and new behaviors that should characterize the child of God. Those, those two, I think, those two headings capture the idea behind the two paragraphs that we're going to look at. Now, as we read God's word a moment ago, you noticed in verses 5 through 12 that Paul begins uh, with some words that, that are similar to what he uses elsewhere. Back in Ephesians, Galatians, I referenced some of these texts before. The idea of putting off and putting on, or here, putting to death, putting to death, this similar idea. Paul is using a word picture, an analogy, you might, you, might, you might say, that I think is helpful to us here. And that is the idea, though back then there were no department stores, the idea of putting off a robe or an article of clothing that's old and worn out and dirty and putting on another one. And if you, if you just put that word picture in your mind, it will help you all the way through the morning. Because Paul is talking about things that, that for one reason or another don't fit you anymore. They're worn out. They're too small. Uh, they're soiled. Uh, I realize that in our day, uh, sometimes things that are kind of worn out and ripped and torn increase in value. Uh, that wasn't the paradigm that Paul had. Uh, he's saying put things, certain things off because you, child of God, are not the same person you used to be. That's really the idea that he's, he's leaning on through this whole text, not just here in chapter 3, but all the way back to chapter 2, verse 6. Even you could find traces of this in chapter 1, where he says, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. That's chapter 2, verse 6. And then he's fleshing out what that looks like. And the idea as he comes to today's text is, if you're a Christian, 
There are certain things that just don't fit anymore. They don't fit you as a child of God. So those should be put aside, set aside, and you should be clothed with new things, new behaviors, new attitudes, new approaches to life, new ways that you you respond to people and even respond to correction. Uh, There are new ways that people of God should be living. So you take a look. Now, Paul is going to give two lists. And in verse 5, as we look at the text together, is you have, he has list number one, list number one of the bad things. And if you look at these things, uh, he mentions five, sexual immorality, impurity, passion. He doesn't mean here like passion for drawing or passion for a certain sport. This is sinful passion, evil desire. All of the terms that Paul uses have kind of a, a, a sexual immorality connotation. And then he concludes with the fifth uh, term, which is covetousness, which is very interesting because those it doesn't really have a sexual connotation per se. Uh, it, it's a drawback to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Uh, the Tenth Commandment in particular is the command not to covet. To, that is, of course, coveting means that you're, you're wanting things in your heart that somebody else has. They're not yours. Things that for one reason or another God hasn't chosen to give you yet and may never give you. If you think back to, again to the 10th commandment, uh, as represented in Exodus 20, God says, uh, don't covet your, your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, his manservant or his female servant. Don't cover, covet rather his ox or his donkey. And then the, the wrap-up phrase, or anything that's your neighbor's. So that, that longing, he's really pressing here on things that happen in your heart. And one of the tenets of biblical counseling as we talk about these things together regularly in our church family is that the, is that the heart is active. Our hearts are active. Uh, Elise Fitzpatrick in her book, Idols of the Heart, would, would remind you that your heart is active. It's not passive. You're not just sitting here and having the world act upon you and these desires just are forced on you by the world. No, no, really, to, to tell the truth and to agree with the Bible, of course, is to tell the truth. Our hearts are active. We long for things. We want stuff, don't we? And the stuff we want is not always in keeping with what God has chosen to give us or indeed may ever give us. But our hearts are active, not passive. And so here, Paul is looking at the things that are longings of the heart, all of those things in that list of sexual immorality and and coveting, They all flow from the heart. Jesus is always very clear on that. These things don't just come from outward things. They come from from my own heart. And Paul says of them, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And here he's leaning on what John Owen would say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Paul is saying these things used to characterize you, people to whom he's writing, as he speaks of this in verse 7, and these you too once walked. He says, before you all came to Christ, you lived a certain way, uh, certain behaviors, and you lived into these longings and lived into those appetites. But now you're a child of God. And he says, those things don't fit you anymore. And he concludes verse 5 by saying, these things are idolatry. Now, among Bible scholars, I'm aware In the academy, there's discussion about whether the idolatry phrase is attached specifically to the the term coveting, that that's idolatry, or whether Paul is saying that all five of them taken together would be be idolatry. I think that's more the idea. I'm leaning with that group because I believe that that entire list 
involves putting something else as God, something else that's the most important thing in my life right now, which is idolatry, is failing to bow before and worship the one true God. So I, I think that whole list would, 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 would be categorized as idolatry, really. And Paul gives this list, and he says, Child of God, uh, you've come to know him. You've been crucified with Christ, raised to new life. And here's, here's one list of things that have no place in your life. And may I say that was true back then, and it's true today. There are opportunities and struggles and temptations that are, attend us in modern life that the ancients knew nothing of. Uh, we have an ease of access to things that are impure that other generations have never had. And you know all the things that I'm talking about. And, and as we all worship together today, we do so before a God who sees and knows it all. And so if those are areas in particular, you quickly, your mind right away says, yep, guilty there. Hey, friend, this text is talking to you, isn't it? Child of God, there are certain things that have no place in your life. They would characterize a person who does not know Christ. And to indulge in those things is idolatry. It's bowing before something else, someone else that is uh, rather than the true God. So he says, in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But put them away. Put them away. They don't fit you anymore, child of God. Now, in verse 8, he comes to a next list. And take a look at that with me. Uh, list number two. Um, so two bad lists, one good list, as we'll see in a minute. Here's bad list number two. But now, he says, uh, you must put them all away. And here's, here's his second list. And I want to talk these through as we go. So anger. Now, we just heard, if you were with us uh, live a moment ago, heard the whole service, you heard a story on anger. And interestingly, this weekend, uh, before pandemic arose, of course, this weekend was scheduled to be our biblical counseling weekend for this year. Actually, it was supposed to be back in March. This was our second uh, date. Uh, And of course, that has come and gone. But we were going to uh, take a look at anger together, a biblical understanding of anger. And we'll reschedule that, by the way. Don't get rid of the books that you just read in preparation. Sometime this fall, we anticipate returning to that as a conversation Uh, biblical approach to anger. So Paul says, put these away. Anger. Interesting. What is, what does he mean here? Uh, Because all anger is not necessarily sinful anger, is it? And if you've read our our books in preparation for the seminar that didn't happen, you, you read a number of things about that. Uh, Not all anger is sinful anger. In fact, interestingly, the most angry person in the whole Bible is God. Wouldn't that be true? The wrath of God, the wrath of God uh, is, is presented from start to finish, the wrath of God against sin. Now, not an out-of-control anger, which Paul is pressing on here, but not a sinful anger. Again, that's the idea behind what Paul is saying. Um, most of the time, by the way, when we say, well, uh, that was, <laughs> for when I get angry, that was, that was, so, that was righteous anger. Most of our tongue-in-cheek definitions of that would be righteous anger is anger that I have. Sinful anger is anger that you have. That's typically the way we think about this. Well, Paul is is speaking here about the sinful variety. Put these aside. He says, so anger, and then uh, the ESV says wrath. I have on your study notes outbursts of anger because that's the idea behind it. Explosive Uh, Some of you struggle with that, or some of you live with someone or know someone who struggles with explosive anger. You never know what's going to set them off. We're doing fine, doing fine, and bam, all of a sudden, something happens. And Paul says, no, no, it shouldn't be that way for the child of God. Malice. 
Malice or mean behavior is the idea. Meanness. Uh, wow. Could, could, why would he need to tell Christians not to be mean to each other? Well, guess what? Uh, we're all sinners. So he says, don't be mean. Malice. Uh, slander. Should say a word about this. Speaking ill of others. I know, I know, sometimes when we think about this, uh, whether it's discussing things online or discussing things behind someone's back, we often say, well, I'm not slandering them. I'm only telling the truth. And we fool ourselves into thinking that as long as what we said, like they're a, a blithering idiot. Well, it's true. So I can just say it. I'm not slandering them. They are. Well, actually, in, in the Bible, uh, slander not only addresses whether what you said or, is true or not, but your motive in saying whatever you said. So maybe you're saying the person's a blithering idiot, which maybe an argument could be made, but your reason for commenting on that is not good. It's not for their good and edification. Maybe you're really slandering them by telling the truth. Can that happen? Yes, in fact, it can. And again, I think it happens a lot online where someone is saying, well, I'm just saying what's true. And you may be. But what's your motive in doing so? Was it, was it building someone up? Was it encouraging the family of God? Uh, think about that. The next time you throw something, maybe marginally, at least inappropriate online, and you're hiding behind, well, it's true. You know, stop it already. It may be true, but is it good? Is it helpful? Is it right? Does it promote peace and harmony in the church family? And if it doesn't, then stop it already. Uh, there's no reason for it. So speaking ill of others, slander. And then again, uh, obscene talk. You say obscene talk. That talks. That sounds like like you know dirty language. And certainly the term that Paul uses covers that. But it goes beyond just uh, off color comments, and would include include anything that's abusive, abusive speech, uh, talk to or about someone that's that's bullying them, that's beating them up, that's that's irritating, that's smacking them over the head. So abusive speech. Now, I mentioned again, if you have study notes in front of you, that is, as Paul gives this second list and looking at the verses that now follow, it's very clear he's not just talking about you as an individual. We're very quick as individualistic type people to think about, uh, you know, just me and Jesus here. This is only about me. It isn't. I mean, it is about you. But, but in this context, it's about us. This is really church family as evidenced by the, the plural use, not evidenced in English, but you've heard me as I've preached before that in Greek, the, the term you, that we translate you, in Greek, you can have you, singular, you, y'all, to use a good southern phrase, or all y'all. And all of those would translate you in English. Greek is a lot more specific that way. And these are plural you. So he's talking church family. Further, he says one another, verse 9. Don't lie to one another. It's not just about lying all by yourself in your own house, but don't lie to other people. There's a, there's a community element. And then, of course, this whole idea of unity only works in a community setting. So if you look with me then, verse 9, not only the second bad list, don't do those things, put those off, but don't lie. So speak the truth, uh, remembering together we've put aside these things. They don't fit us anymore. And then there's this new self, which will be the subject in verse 12. This new self being renewed, it's a process, isn't it? And all of us who've been Christians for a while are so grateful that the Bible acknowledges that we're people in process. Um, It's not that you weren't a Christian, came to Christ, and now you're all fixed. Uh, It's really not like that, is it? It's being renewed, the Spirit of God using the Word of God and the Spirit of God using the people of God. 
God uses other believers to help us to grow, to humble us, to sharpen us. So God's people are part of the the, 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 the change process, aren't they? Uh, now, verse 12, or verse 11, rather, is very interesting. Barbarians. You like that idea? There are barbarians in the church. Well, in the early church, there were barbarians. Um, man, we don't usually ter- use those kinds of terms. But I, I think Paul's talking about four groups of people here, uh, not eight. Uh, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Well, that's, those would be another, other ways of saying those two groups. And barbarians, Scythians, slaves and free. I, I think... Slave and free described the first two. So I really think he's talking about four, but we can quarrel about that over coffee later, uh, gently, of course. But I, I, I think he's just pointing out the, the different kinds of people there in the early church. And he's saying, you know what? Greek, Jew, barbarian, and Scythian. Well, both of those, of course, the non-Greek-speaking people, the non-cultured people. People you might say are, uh, at least in the parlance of the day, the, the lower classes of people, not speaking ill of them necessarily, um, but just saying it's the, 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 the less educated, the less refined, you know, whoever those, those people are that your society would consider the lower ones. And of course, to call them barbarians is kind of that. Um, Non-Greek speaking people, less educated. And the point of verse 11 isn't to beat up anybody. It's to say all of these people belong in the church. Isn't that interesting? From uh, this range here would go all the way from a, a Jewish person, well-cultured, well-taught, having memorized half of the Torah or more, to uh, a, a Greek person who knows Greek literature and Greek culture and so on, to some barbarians and Scythians who don't know a thing about any of that stuff. Don't share your cultural background and baggage. Slaves and free. And Paul says you all belong in one body. And this is a striking look at what a church is all about, because in our, our, tip, our day, we would typically think, wouldn't it just be easier if you had the first church of the barbarians, and then down the road on the left, you had the first church of the Scythians? I mean, they could do their own barbarian and Scythian type stuff and, and not have to bug each other. And in New Testament understanding, it's that bugging of each other that helps all of us to grow. Sometimes it is easier to be in a place where there's no rub or irritation or difficulty. You may be right. But then, of course, if you take that to its extreme, you're going to have to live alone because you bug everybody, as do I. So something in the church family, Paul isn't saying get rid of all the differences. He's saying those differences should sharpen us and help us, humble us, help us to learn. Imagine being a cultured Jew and having a barbarian no, really, it's in the text. Address you on something at church. Are you humble enough to take it? Or would you just say, yeah, you're just some barbarian. Who needs to listen to you? Well, in the New Testament understanding of what the church is about, Christ is all and in all. Maybe the Spirit of God would use a barbarian to humble your proud heart. Isn't that interesting? So verses 5 through 11, then, this putting off there are certain things, child of God, that don't, don't characterize you anymore. So then quickly looking at verses 12 through 17, really two parts here. This is a much easier list to read, of course, in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. These, in many cases, are just opposites of what we've already explained. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. That a good list. Bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, 
forgiving each other as God has forgiven you, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Isn't that interesting? Above all these things, put on love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. And I I take that idea of binding together. Uh, Again, commentators discuss all these things. Theologians uh, get around to go around the block on these things. But, but using the put off and put on terminology of laying aside old garments, putting on new ones, perhaps Paul uses that, that binding idea of love almost like a, a belt that would wrap around a, a new robe that would cover the child of God with that behavior that's fitting for a Christian. So verse 12 then, um, certainly a much easier list to read. And Paul's describing the way, again, in plural, a church family ought to function. Uh, This comes at a high price. This stuff is not easy. If you think it is, oh, well, just everybody just, you know, love each other and get along. Hey, you know what? No, if you've been around long enough, as as some of us have been now, um, the exercise of these things can be very, very difficult, but it's very, very worth it to submit yourself to to the challenge of learning and growing together. Difficult? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But, But very, very worth it. Now, I include verses 15 through 17 in this paragraph because I think they help us understand how do you do this? How do you do this? All right. And you'll notice the emphasis as we already alluded to with John Owen, there's an emphasis in verse 15 on what rules your hearts. Do you see this? There's some, there's some things repeated in 15, 16, and 17 that should give us a pause and should help us understand how this works. Let the peace of Christ, what? Rule in your hearts. And of course, that brings the question, what rules your heart? What rules your heart? What owns you? Because what owns your heart is going to be replicated in your life. And so here he says, let the peace, the peace of Christ. Now, he's not talking about some ethereal magic zap that Christ gives you. No, it's the peace that, that it belongs to the family of God because of what Jesus says, because of who Jesus is, and because who, of who we are in him. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the word about Christ. Uh, you see a parallel there, verses 15 and 16. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, uh, very similar in terms of their, their grammatical structure. But Paul says then the peace of Christ should rule in, in your hearts. And you were called to this, of course, in one body. And here, for the first time, he says, be thankful. Well, the first time in this paragraph... Be thankful. He says, be thankful. This is an attitudinal thing. It's a choice you make. Now, then let the word of Christ dwell in you. So the peace of Christ, and now the word of Christ, the word of God, the word, the word that goes along with the gospel. He's not thinking here about the words of Jesus as Jesus dwelt on earth or the words of Christ. This is the, the teaching about Christ. Is, again, there's some grammatical things that are bore you silly, but that's really what's behind this. The, the teaching about Christ, it's the gospel. Let this dwell in you richly. Live in the gospel, you could also say in our, in our kinds of language. Let the gospel dwell in you richly, and let this be the framework that will, that will shape the teaching and encouraging, admonishing, he says. What is that? Well, it involves correcting It involves encouraging, involves helping each other to follow Christ. Admonishing is not always easy to do and certainly not easy to receive, but it's very much a biblical function, even in our day if it's not not your business. Teaching and encouraging or helping one another in all wisdom. Lord, help us with that. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And look, number two, thankfulness in your hearts. 
What's ruling your hearts? Verses 15, 16, 17, really, really grab that. What rules your heart? Is it the peace of Christ? Is it the word of Christ? Is it thankfulness? Is it thankfulness ruling in your hearts? And whatever you do, kind of a summary, whatever you do in the way you talk or in the things you do, do all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. And here's the third, giving thanks. Third time he mentions it, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, there are a whole number of things that we've moved quickly through. It's a big text. Some of your community groups are still meeting, as is ours, uh, by Zoom. And um, I, I just would encourage you to use those community group notes. Again, those are available for you on our website. Maybe even within your family, if your community group isn't meeting or you've never joined one. And take the time to talk some of these things through. What does that look like in real life? What's it look like in your family? What's it look like in a church family? Now, I, I come down to the responding to God's word part, and then I want to return very briefly to John Owen for a final word. But I look here with you at the part called responding to God's word, and I, I ask you under that first heading, uh, is there a behavior or a habit that you quickly are aware of right now, spirit of God, grabbing your heart, and you know exactly what we're talking about? Is there a behavior or a habit Things you do, that you approve, you allow, ways you, you interact with people. I don't know, what, whatever, the Lord knows, and you do. Is there a behavior or habit that you need to set aside because it just doesn't fit a child of God? I can think of certain times in my life when that, that mentality was helpful to me. You know, Jay, I think it's time you set that aside. Well, I'm asking you that. Put off. Put on, put off those things that just don't fit anymore for a child of God. Maybe, maybe today, maybe this week, maybe there'd be a decision that you'll make. You say, you know what? This or that has been a part of my life, and it's time I moved on. That doesn't fit a child of God. Now, I have one little caveat here. I hope you pay attention to it. Let's be clear, I, I say here. Living from the good list, verses 12 to 15, 14, and so on. That good list, living there doesn't mean that all our problems will go there, won't go away or that there won't be things to address. So I use an example here of a spouse. Uh, a spouse uh, in a marriage where there's some things to talk about should not use this list to just plead for mercy and ignore the opportunity to talk about things. Sometimes, as I mentioned, mercy has a sting to it. And so here, if there are things that in your family or your marriage or with your kids or so on you need to talk about, um, it would be wrong for you to say, hey, come on, just, just put up with me. Well, yes, and I love you too much to just ignore things. So you might think about those things as well. I want to close with, with John Owen again because I am so captured by this man who talked a lot about sin, and I'm, I'm fascinated by his heart. And Owen was captured by the glory of God. Even one who is one who grieved and grieved deeply and continuously uh, throughout his whole life, being married to his wife, losing all those children and then losing his wife. He, he grieved. That was his normal breakfast. And yet he was captured somehow in the midst of that by the glory of Christ that did not remove grief, but it gave a, a, a focus and a flavor. And so um, in this interesting 900-page book called Meet the Puritans, uh, it's not bedtime reading, but it's kind of interesting to look at. There's a 
excuse me, there's a section here on John Owen. And it says this, on the day before he died, Owen wrote to a friend. I am going to him whom my soul has loved, or rather who has loved me with an everlasting love, which is the whole ground of my consolation, my comfort. I am leaving the ship of the, of the church in a storm. But where the great, where the great pilot is in it, the loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. Live and pray and hope and wait patiently. Do not despond. The promise stands invincible, invincible that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And then uh, a day later, the day that he would, he would eventually die, uh, he was visited by another, another preacher who let him know that the first pages of his final book were, were being printed. And his final book was called Meditation on the Glory of Christ, 250 pages on one verse, John 17, 24, The Glory of Christ. And I just started reading that this last week. The uh, key thing in the book is he says the best way to live and the best way to prepare to die is to have your heart captured by the glory of Christ. And in living, he means dealing with sin. And here is, here is what he said to that friend. Uh, on the day that he would later die. He said, I'm so glad to hear about the book being published and so on. He says, the long wished for day has come at last in which I shall see that glory in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of doing in this world. In other words, in the fight against sin, the way to do it is to be captured by the glory of Christ, that that should rule our hearts. I hope today that that you'll think about this text and that the glory of Christ will rule your heart so that certain things you'll quickly see they don't belong here and other things do. Make the changes you know you need to make as God helps you. I want to pray for us. Just a word or two of announcement afterward and we'll be done. Father, I thank you today for your word. So much to think about in this text, so quick to say it and yet a lifetime to apply it. Our Father, I, in looking at all of these things, I found myself thinking, who am I to even address these things? I am not done with this battle against sin. Uh, like all who join us today for worship, together we are those walking this path, not having completed it. And so, Father, along with all those of us worshiping together, I too pray for your grace and your help. Lord, you see and you know the things that go on inside of us the things from which our outward behavior and words flow. So help us, our Father, and so consume us with the glory of Christ that that will capture us the most. Thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.